welcome to Real Talk. Real Talk is about real conversations with real people regarding diversity in higher education. I am your co-host, Jamil Harp, a student activist. And I'm Casey Counselor, a professor in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department at Southern Connecticut State University. All right, Jamil, let's go. Hello, Casey. How are we? I'm good, Jamil. We are coming off of a, a really an amazing podcast with two passionate advocates for trans rights here in Connecticut. And we're joined by our whole podcast team um, to break down what it was a really uh, rich episode, um, certainly uh, plenty for us to talk about today. Yes, there was so much to unpack from yesterday's podcast. I think we should start straight up. Let's start going on the topic of myths something I, I think we want to dive deeper into. And before we do that, actually, um, let's welcome, uh, typically we don't have Aaron Morbita with us, uh, who's here from the Sage Center um, on campus, uh, joining the podcast team um, to talk more about, about trans issues, myths, all the good stuff. Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, so yeah, like Casey said, my name is Aaron. I use they, them pronouns. And I'm the intern for the Sage Center here at Southern. Great. Yeah. We're so glad to have you and, and excited to bring in this, you know, component in terms of what you're seeing on campus, um, ways that you're supporting students um, and what, what you're seeing basically on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this semester has definitely been uh, tougher to connect with students, but from what we have seen, you know, especially with the first years coming in, not really knowing what college is supposed to be like and trying to find resources like SAGE. Um, virtually has been different. Yeah, well, so glad to have you. Um, and yes, Jamil, okay, so back to your point. Let's talk about myths. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Where do you want to start? Well, what are some of the, the most outlandish myths that we're talking about that are kind of circling around on the interweb that's just untrue? Okay, so when we're talking about um, these anti-trans bills, whether that's youth sports, access to healthcare, um, we're seeing less bathroom bills um, than we did a few years ago. Um, but some of them are the idea that, I mean, the one that I think is, is kind of most pernicious maybe is the idea that if you, if you outlaw gender affirming care for trans people or for trans kids, that will mean that no one in your, in your state or your jurisdiction will be trans that it's possible to say, if we don't offer care, then that will somehow mean that we don't have trans people. And we know, I mean, I speak from experience as a trans person, if I didn't have access to care, that wouldn't make me not trans. It would make me a trans person without access to really to like to life-saving care. Mm -hmm. And there's also of course, like long-standing myths about trans women uh, being really just men in dresses. You know, men who want to take over women's spaces, also a really pernicious, long-standing myth about trans women, not as, as women, but as, as men who are taking over women's spaces. I think often these myths about what the trans experience is, right, what that identity holds is lost with not understanding the community in a whole. I think often folks are not close to someone they think is trans. They 
they may not know. They don't have any representation around them in their lives. And so myths are very easy to spread and to believe by folks that are not ingrained in the queer culture. Um, and it's often out of fear, fear of something in which they don't know is happening or fear that somehow this is something people can catch. It's almost like how we were talking about earlier, like, oh, if we allow gay people on TV, you know, my children will turn gay. This weird idea of it's just going to pass on to everyone, um, which is also a myth. Yeah, you yeah. know, if I can just, uh, I, and I don't, it, it, I feel like sometimes when I, I talk, it's like, well, let's talk about my days, you know, back in the day. But even I remember conversations, um, you know, my my work, um, my graduate work was in um, race relations and critical race studies. And uh, I still remember pushback on how far do we want to build a curriculum in the in secondary school um, around uh, LGBTQIA um, and the acronym wasn't that long back in the day. Uh, and, and would that infect, you know, by having that curriculum in secondary school, that would pollute, it would harm, create more harm to talk about these, what, what does it mean to have a family? What does it look like? And having um, a family doesn't look like what we, can, what we, what, what we grew up with. And so the, these myths, again, that if we just silence this, if we just not talk about it, we will create, we will create less harm. So if, if you're, for example, having, you know, back to, if you're not out as a transgender individual, how would we know? How, how would anybody know? So what is, I keep myself, you know, I keep asking the question about how do we talk about a population that sometimes we just don't know so why would we continue to have these myths and continue to have these make these comments or statements or have these beliefs if if we if we don't know it, 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 not that bad. so how do we educate ourselves around this you know like i said now we have a curriculum in secondary ed that finally is talking about family in all the diverse ways how do we begin to talk about transgender identity, regardless if you're out? That we all come to the assumption that we just assume that you could be transgender, period. And so how we create inclusive spaces without generalizing or being pejorative or biased. I, 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 like, do you have to come out? Um, I, I know, you, I know you, I, I'm not saying if I feel like you're pressured to come out, but why should you? You you just chose. I find it's a personal journey. I've been thinking about this as as, as my struggle. Well, I'll say that, you know, we talked about this yesterday, that, that trans, non-binary, intersex people, we are statistically a small group, but we are numerically quite large. Um, and there's a huge diversity of experience within that that group of people. So, um, and I think this came out uh, in our conversation yesterday, but I don't think it can be stated enough that there's not a single, and there's there's not one, there's not two, there's not three ways of being trans or experiencing um, transition, what that even means, what coming out means. It's just 
there's a huge variety and, and maybe Aaron, you can, you can talk about this too. Um, but there are plenty of trans people who don't want to come out. Um, and one thing I'll say about these bills is that it is forcing those of us who had otherwise perhaps been like going about our lives in a more quiet way. It's forced us to really speak out um, and to try to be as loud as possible and get as many allies as possible because um, there really is such a threat to our well-being. Um, and the other thing to your point, Diane, I'll just say that folks may not know how different the conditions are in different states. So access to healthcare, access to resources, protections by law is a state-by-state -state situation. Um, so like we may very well have people who migrate to Connecticut from Texas in order to keep their family together if they have a trans kid. Um, I certainly chose to live here for that, for that reason, but even within the United States, there's a vast um, disparity between living conditions um, for people. Yeah, and I think um, kind of to both of your points, when we're talking about trans people and trying to you know, expand our horizons and expand how we talk about the community, um, I think our society is shifting towards the direction of really focusing on the individual experience and, and really understanding like the intersectionality and the different experiences that people have. Because um, like you said, you know, no two trans people, even if they use the same word to describe themselves, are not going to have the same feelings, thoughts, or even like lived experiences um, in terms of, you know, do they want to come out? Do they transition? What does that look like for them? It's really an individual experience. I would also add to your point, Diane, I think when we're talking about educating our community around trans, I think we should also embed that into our education system. I don't think when someone gets to college, this should be the first time having a conversation about transness. I think we should talk about that. And it's variety of sorts, you know, talking about people in history, talking about having that in public health classes, talking about that in all areas and not just in the area of queerness. Um, I think expanding that so people are exposed to it. So it doesn't seem like this is this new foreign concept that just appeared out of nowhere. I think being fair with how we teach not only our K through 12, but our college classes um, in terms of representation is really important to cultures, to backgrounds, but also to this topic right here. Well, and, and uh, you know, I, the, the educational piece, I, I, we, we talked about it, you know, your guests talked at length about when we're putting um, statements out and, and Jamil, to your point of the curriculum, it, it seems like there's um, a level, uh, like, I, I don't know if faculty think of it in a quantitative way, which is if I put a, um, a quarter of DEI into the course, Good for us. I mean, back in my day, if you had a chapter on uh, feminism, you were like, whoa, what, how revolutionary. And usually the chapter was at the end of the book. We didn't start with, um, you know, black feminism or uh, women of color feminism. It was always at the end or any type of feminism. Um, I find that even at Southern, and I, I'll say this in, in, in ways that, but, but that's true for our journalism when we talk about 
Black Lives Matter, we don't talk about intersectionality. To your point, Erin, I mean, it the the conversation or narrative doesn't talk about all the transgender women that have died um, by police brutality. We, we it doesn't come up other than if you're trans or if you're part of the community that says we too exist. And so how do we as educators, as we're talking about racial construction, racial identity, not generalizing, that intersectionality and, and, and narrative of, of a voice, um, it's upon us. And, and I'm thinking about this as we're moving into, um, not that I want to shift conversation, but to We've had enough conversations about the Chauvin trial and how we're now moving, you know, hopefully to a good outcome from that. But but we still talk ab about this issue as a racial um, issue. We don't talk about all the other deaths that intersect with race. Um, I find that so problematic and uh, we're not there yet. We haven't gotten better at that. I think folks don't realize that they're that their identities are connected and not happening in silos, right? Like, I don't go about life experiencing things just as a man. I experience things as a as a Black man that is gay. Like, I experience all my, my identities in one. I can't be separate from them. Um, they have to, they all are one. And so when we're talking about these issues, we have to talk about intersectionality. And we have to look at communities that specifically are harmed in terms of police brutality. When we're looking at the trans community, and we know that Black trans women are the most vulnerable, right, in terms of police brutality, violence, and we're having a conversation about Black Lives Matter, it is anti-Black to leave that community out, to pretend like that's not an issue in our community, to pretend like this right here is not happening. We know it's happening. Some of us like to be selective in who we include in part of our conversation and our activism. But if we truly want racial equity, gender equity, if we want all these things, we once first, once um, Black trans women are free and not facing oppression, we all won't be facing oppression. That's right. Because that group throws the intersect of the entire world's oppression in a way in which I don't think many other groups do. Yeah, and I'll say it's been... You know, I've seen just amazing um, work come out of Black trans advocacy, Black trans activists, in terms of bringing that conversation to mainstream um, protests, marches, actions, um, seeing Black Trans Lives Matter signs, and not just at the separate small little protest that happens on the Sunday after the Saturday protest. But really, I think we're seeing more of that happening. And that really is a, a testament to activist work. Definitely. And I think kind of also tying that into um, like the legislation piece that, you know, with things have been going on. I know at least in Connecticut, this was maybe a year or two ago, there was an, a case where um, two black trans women were sued uh, for wanting to be on the, you know, for playing in the women's sports teams. Um, and it was only, it only became a problem um, once they were winning, you know, that other people felt so threatened by their success that they had to, um, you know, find a way to, to take them down. 
That's right. And we see this is something we did talk about yesterday with Carly, is that we see those attacks against black women, black cisgender women like Michelle Obama, like Serena Williams, Venus Williams. And what we're really seeing is is gender policing, race, racialized gender policing that happens. And these these um, it's not just the anti-trans bills, but it's the culture and it's the um, environment that that these kinds of um, myths and these kinds of, of feelings create um, that impact people far beyond just trans people. Anyone who doesn't conform to stereotypical gender um, expression, they are vulnerable to that. Um, to, I mean, they're subject to the same thing, you know? So it just constrains um, all of us um, in a way that is just, you know, has me ask, is this really what we actually want to be doing and how we want to be spending our time. That is a beautiful point, Casey. I really think about the conversation yesterday in terms of accomplishments of the entire queer community. And regardless of sentiments that are anti-trans, anti-LGBTQIA+, we have made accomplishments regardless of those things. We have rallied, we have protest, we have lobbied, we have fought for our rights and gained them in ways. And I know in 10 years, when I'm a little bit older, we will see more rights. And then when I'm 60 and I'm a little bit older, we will see more rights. And so I think we often forget when we're reading history books and we're like, oh, how can people do such a thing? How did people feel a certain way? It's about being on the right side of history, quite frankly, because this, this issue right here is moving forward, whether it's like it or not. It's not like we're going to legislate trans people out of existence, like they're going to disappear. They're not disappearing. They're a part of our community. They're a part of the American experience. Their history is American history, whether folks like that or not, quite frankly. And their accomplishments have really shaped America in a way in which we do not discuss in civics. We don't discuss in really most classes. So a lot of folks are unaware of that. But this community is not going anywhere Regardless of what folks say, regardless of whether or not people want them to play on sports teams or enter bathrooms or enter classrooms or get the health care they want, the community will overcome regardless of these circumstances. And I think folks miss that out. Um, we're all Americans. Trans voices matter just as much as anybody else's voice yeah, matter. So true. You know, Aaron, if I may, I... I I always bring it back to Southern because this is my my life's work right now. And I, I coming off of a, a lavender ceremony and doing learning about Jenna and, and your work in in the Sage Center, I always um am curious because I've asked the rest of the group, how could we do better resourcefully on our campus? Resources, we are all complaining, never enough, never enough. We're always as we just learned, um, you've got two of our facilitators that are not um, being supported financially for this work. And, you know, I, you could look at me and say, Diane, what are you going to do about it? But but I think it's bigger than just Diane. So I'm, I, I, I'd like, could you share a little bit about, or anyone, but Aaron, what should, what more should we be doing to elevate our resources for the Sage Center and 
other other areas that you think um, are needed? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I don't want to hit the point home about finances, but financial resources are kind of at the root of a lot of things. Um, so just things like increasing funding or, um, you know, more staffing, that sort of thing, that all ties into, um, like us as a as the Sage Center and, and us as Southern being able to give back to the community and, um, and provide like social and educational sorts of things. Um, and I think in addition to that, just Southern does actually a good job of this compared to other schools I've experienced, um, but just like collaborating and being connected really with each other um, and like bringing those voices to the table. So working with other departments, other organizations, other faculty, et cetera, um, to really highlight how these issues affect students in all areas and staff and faculty in all areas. You know, Aaron, at my previous institution and to everyone, I used to have a group of very loud, vocal, uh, and I and I say LGBTQIA student org so much that this group would go to conferences. This is a this is a, a religious institution that is no longer Catholic, but they would be supported by the chaplain, Catholic chaplain, to go to these conferences. And what they would do is they were they, they would go and come back with information and say, we are your ambassadors and now it's upon you to do better. So I didn't rely on the faculty necessarily because we didn't have many who understood, but the student org became, I mean, vital as activists. They would meet with the president and they would meet with the provost to say, how are we going to do better in the curriculum? And actually they were doing presentations to the health human services area around, around how to create better policy uh, for around health practice, how to better train our health and human services students to understand how to work with the LGBTQIA community, very focused on transgender and what does that mean for policy around medication and health practice, insurance, et cetera. I mean, these were true activists. And I'm wondering, I'm curious, I don't see that in the same way now. Am I just making that up or what? Is it a resource issue? Is it a resource plus? I don't hear my voice. I don't think my voice is supported in that way. But I mean, these, they were educators. They became the educators for the institution. Uh, yeah, I think, especially the students at Southern that I've interacted with, they do have that that passion and that drive to, um, to really speak for the community and, and bring up those issues. And I think part of the problem of why we don't see that so much at Southern, at least specifically with the LGBT plus community, um, is just the platform. You know, we try to connect with our student club, um, you know, to work on things together and to promote their events. But, um, you know, if we're also trying to do our own things separately and, you know, it's hard to connect with them or um, or give them that, that space to, um, you know, get them connected to the higher ups and and really make sure that people are listening to the students. I think it's a multifaceted problem. Yes, it's 100% a finance problem. It's also a mentorship problem. It's a multifaceted problem. And 
we need to also hire faculty that represent the demographics, right? That represents the activism we want to see on campus. If you want queer, queer students to feel more comfortable, to feel more loved on campus, you need to hire more trans faculty. You need to hire more queer faculty. It's really that simple. Like you need to have representation on our campus and not just for queer students, but for all students. I think, you know, we, we don't need to have everyone on the same page about what does it mean to be queer in order for us to see progress. You know, the more that we increase representation, we know we're going to start seeing more classes that start involving intersectionality, that start diving into these topics. And you're going to start finding that people that has never even thought about the topic become passionate about it as well. And I think when we're talking about our, like the SAGE Center, for instance, or our LGBT clubs on campus, we also need to do a better job as partnering with all of us, right? We need to know how many of our students are queer first, because we only know. And where are we, right? Like, how can we all rally together? I think we need to do a better job of rallying together and also offering a diverse amount of experiences. Like, maybe we need support groups, but maybe we also need professional development groups, right? Where we come together as professionals and network with each other, meet each other, so we know who we are on campus. We know where our safe places are. We know that there's folks we can rely on and talk to. Throughout my experience at Southern, I did not necessarily have a community that I was leaning on that was specifically identified for my queer experience. I can't say that. So I think we need to have a better job at identifying folks and inviting people in and seeing what they need in that moment. Because we know that what students need four years ago is different from what students need now. That needs to be an ongoing conversation of what does this class of students want and need? Because we know that every class that comes in is unique. Their problems are unique. What they're bringing to the table, their voice, their expertise, their lens is all unique. So that needs to be an ongoing conversation. I also think, too, something, and I think just as a person, as someone who says, since I, I don't identify with with the direct needs of that community, but want so much to be an ally to it. Um, and something that I, I think one is like, this shouldn't just be, okay, let's, ba let's band together all of our queer students and have the queer students do something. Because just like any other social issue, like, like us as black students, mm -hmm. right? It's not our job, right? To be the ones always marching, always preaching, always educating. And I think the same, the same sentiment can be shared to the queer community in that this is their oppression. So they shouldn't be the ones necessarily being the loudest, especially if we've got queer students that are, we don't know that they're queer and it's meant to be that way. They don't want us to know at the moment. And that's fine. Um, I also think too, in, in to kind of, I think, yes, fin finances and the resources that come with that are important. But I also think too, in the case of students, so speaking as an ally, um, something that I can notice in myself that I, I've failed at is I haven't been fiery enough. I haven't been loud enough in support. And I think, you know, of course, yes, to partner up, to make sure that the higher ups hear the voices of students and take it seriously and, and you know, whatever is important. But, you know, sometimes I just feel like I'm not saying we should barricade ourselves in the buildings and be like, we're not coming out until you hear what we have to say. But I think some, I'm not condoning that, 
So I don't want to get nobody in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm saying sometimes things like that is like what it has to be to get people to be like, oh, this is serious. Like they lock themselves in Angleman. They're not coming out until we have what, you know, like we're in your offices, (laughs) you know, like we're taking over because you're like we we're the students. We're paying for for this. <laughs> like the least you can do is listen to what we have to say and make sure that this is, you know, the queer community is their tuition dollars that are also paying for people's salaries. Very much for the services. It's uh, that's also what's paying for Southern's lights to say to stay on. So the least Southern could do, and any not just Southern but any institution that wants to say that they want to be inclusive and invite people in, the least you could do is sit down and listen. And if not, we will make you listen, but let's not, let's not take it there. Like, let's just hear us out. Let's keep it peaceful. But I think there should be that same type of passion that I, maybe I'm just not being observant enough, but I know I haven't participated in that. And I don't know, I can't say that I've seen something like that driven, like us having a Black Lives Matter protest on our grounds for the queer community. I have not seen that on our campus. And I think it's- I I don't know if I've seen it for other populations either. I mean, I've seen it when there's a racial slur and that happened a few years back, but that sense of activism, I mean, in that, in the way you just described it, I'm a newcomer to Southern and I'm not seeing it like I've seen it on other campuses who are sometimes quiet too. Oh, I could speak to that. (laughs) I think we at Southern, students, faculty, and men, we have a culture of being reactive and not proactive. You know, we respond to events after they already occur and not try to think about ways of responding before something happens. And so often at Southern, you will see it takes something to happen to make the community react to it in real time. And so that's why I think it feels like, oh, there's not really nothing happening because until there's a incident, until there's a event that happens, then you will see Southern speak out. Then you will see students calling admin. Then you will see parents calling. But if there's nothing happening and Southern's having a regular day, it's going to feel like a regular day. In my opinion, in my experience here, that has been... um, something I've noticed. Well, and echoed throughout any, that's not, that's not a Southern problem. I mean, that's not unique to just us. That's, I mean, Black lives have always mattered, but it took a whole bunch of people dying for it to make a difference in the media. You know, and the same, the same goes for trans, right? Trans, trans, trans community, queer community have always had problems, but it's taken something as drastic as these unnecessary bills to get people's attention. Um, or so, suicide. Yeah. Or suicide. Yep. Right. But like also like the trans community is feeling this in waves because folks are not just trans. So if you're trans, you're black and you're female, you're feeling all of these things, right? You're feeling the intersect of all these problems at once. So what happens in Black Lives Matter, what happens in women's rights, what happens in all these different spaces will impact you. So I think we often forget when we start looking at issues, when you look at them intersectional. And I don't know why we need to, sometimes I feel like this, why do we have to yell, scream and fight 
to have progress. Why can't folks intentionally be like, let's make our spaces inclusive, right? Let's make sure our spaces are inclusive for those with disabilities, for those that have marginalized identities, because we have brought you onto campus. We're assuming the responsibility of making sure you have a fair and equitable education. And we have already said that we want to ensure that you have that education. Why can't we make that happen? I'm often lost on that point right there. And I think it really goes down back to hiring people of diverse communities, not just hiring a handful of people of color, but hiring people that represent so many different demographics that you start seeing policies that make sense, that look like the nation we live in. And that's not just for a Southern, that's for all institutions um, across our nation. We need to start hiring and putting people in charge that don't come from the same demographic and population they normally and historically have came from. I think, you know, one thing I worry about is, you know, you can hire a bunch of people. Um, you sure can. But if you're not supporting that, I mean, that doesn't, it's the policies behind that um, in the in the structure of the institution. Like I worry about, honestly, um, people getting the impression that they're going to have an easy time as a trans person, as a trans student at Southern, because, oh, there's an out trans professor or as a, as a queer student, because, oh, we have a, an out university president who's gay. That doesn't translate. Um, the institution is, is big and there's a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I really worry about that being um, a cover uh, for doing some harder, deeper work. Absolutely. And I think um, kind of to the point that you brought up, Jamil, um, with not feeling like heard or, um, you know, minoritized students and, and people having to speak volumes just to even be like listened to. I think something I've seen in regards to like, not just Southern, but, you know, kind of at a societal level um, is that the, the issues and the things that minoritized people are bringing up will not be heard until the majority of people start to care about it. So like Black Lives Matter has been going on for, for you know, it's been a movement for years now um, but it wasn't until last year that, you know, when white people started to care about that, that it really kind of took off at a more national level. And I would say that's even true for for those of us that are marginalized. You know, like those of us that may be gay, bisexual, lesbian, and some of the more accepted part of the queer community, we need to also advocate. We need to also protect. We need to also speak on the rest of our community. Um, I, I find it hard that many of us don't feel the need to. We have to. I think going back to yesterday, yesterday's episode, you know, talking with people's families, that's a great way of starting. You know, having that conversation in your family, making sure everyone understands this community, breaking down myths, talking about people with humanity. Could we often speak about folks like they're the boogeyman hiding somewhere in the dark? in the shadows waiting to come out and get you and get your kids. That's not who people are. And so I think it's about talking about folks with humanity at their, their lived experiences and expressing that in your inner circles with your friends, with your family, and then using your privilege as a person that is not, ex, um, is not experiencing these harms and these attacks to speak out and make sure you're supporting them. But also like, I'm gonna speak from a student perspective. How are you involving transness in your work, right? In your research? Are you like doing a project on the community when you can? Like, how are you embedding diversity in your academics, quite frankly? 
that's a conversation we need to have. Are we making graduates that have diverse experiences that can that are knowledgeable on diverse topics, or are we just pushing out graduates that have the same experience on very little topics? When talking about women, are we talking? Are we also being inclusive of trans women? I just see. I see there yeah. are ways that that within our existing structures, the way we're connected, like when we're doing things for women or talking about women's issues, does that also include trans women? And the same thing with men. Well, I want to propose something that Renee said, and that is, I'm ready to spice it up. Like, if it- Watch out. I'm serious about this one. Uh, And I hold students to the highest standard they better hold me to the highest standard. And I keep saying, if someone's going to evaluate me, it's going to be students. What did you do, Diane, to spice this up and make and 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 really have a platform for this these voices and and perspectives to show up? So, Renee, I am all about. I come from a history of taking ownership of buildings. Uh, if if. President Joe's uh, listening to this uh, one uh, podcast. Um, I hope he doesn't think I'm going to take over his um, his office, but I do think that we're we should be ready to step it up. And uh, you have to hold me as a chief diversity officer accountable to that, and I have to hold everybody else accountable to that. We have a student population that is working two jobs that are from working class families that have so many responsibilities outside of their educational experience, specifically at Southern. And so often I find it hard for students to have the time, energy and mental space to engage in some of these activities. But as a student who has engaged in these activities and have talked to the administration on campus frequently, I, I think the administration can do a better job at opening their office doors. I talk to students all the time and they don't feel like they have the ability and the right to go talk to Diana Reza, to to talk to Tracy Tyree, to email President Joe, to reach out to the folks that run our university. Students don't always feel like they have that comfortability, like, oh my gosh, they're the vice president, I can't email them. I'm like, yes, you can. And I'm sure you will have a lovely conversation with them. So I think administration specifically could do a better job at reaching out. I just think that we as students also, I agree, but I'm going to counter that. And I I feel like I think we as students need to recognize the entitlement that we are entitled to. (laughs) We we are the one running the place. (laughs) We are the one that's running the place. It is not Diane. It is not Tracy. I mean, yes, they are our leadership. But ultimately, they're servicing us. So if there's something, you know, that we are passionate about, and if we're going to be passive about it, then they're going to be passive about it, too. And and, and it, it shouldn't be that way. They should care more. And I'm not I, I'm not attacking you, Diane. I'm not saying you don't care. But, like, <laughs> you know, if, if the perception is that our vice presidents, our, our administrative team are not caring about the situation then like it, it is up to us to kind of step it up. And I understand, look at you're looking at somebody who's working three jobs and in grad school full time, and I will make time if I think it's important. And I think this is important. And leadership is, is busy as well. They're not, I mean, I can't see Diane just working nine to five. 
I'm sure she's working around the clock, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can attest to that. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't think you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs. I think you're a busy, a busy, busy person as well. But if it's something that is important, it's something that matters, like like people's lives, like like our students' lives, like that's important. And I think that, I think we need to just tap into our entitlement. And I think that's okay. I understand. Oh, yeah, we, we definitely got to act more entitled. Yeah, no, and, and spread ourselves, you know, like we can't sit waiting, like waiting. We, Renee, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it, it's 24 seven, but how can I process in ways where students, I meet them where they're at. It, it, may mean, it may mean that my office goes to the quad, maybe Tuesdays and Thursdays. I just put a table out and just say, got a question on DEI or- That's actually a really good idea, Diane. <laughs> Especially in the summer, yeah. I am so ready, so ready to change. That's actually a good idea for the summertime in the resident squad. Yeah, I like that. Y'all heard it here on Real Talk. That is where Dr. Ariza <laughs> in the summer. Um, I think also I want to highlight, I think for, for students, especially us that are juniors, seniors, graduate students, please talk to the underclassmen, you know, like the first years, the second years. I think we often forget our role. And how we shape the student experience. I wouldn't be a student leader or have gone for student leader roles if my older peers did not talk to me. If my older peers wasn't there for me to ask questions. My older peers helped empower me, helped tell me that I am entitled to X, Y, and Z. They would be like, oh yeah, Jamil, go ahead, call them. Oh yeah, then why not? Every time I had a problem. And so I feel like throughout my experiences, I have been able to do that and seen some really good results by doing that. And so if there's older students listening, you're thinking like, well, this isn't entitled to me. Like I'm already leaving. Oh no. Oh no. Please talk to the first year students, talk to the second year students and make sure that they have the tools to succeed, that they're um, filling a part of our community as well. I think that's a beautiful note to end on, Jamil, that we all play a role in yeah. cultural change and in, in cultural shifts. Um, and it's about time that we stepped up into that role and also felt that sense of, of belonging that comes with having a voice. Like we do have a say in this institution, mentor your younger students coming in, um, talk to faculty. There's just so much that goes into cultural shift and truly we all have a part to play. So thank you. And thank you, Aaron, for joining us today. 